Welcome, welcome, welcome to Real Job Talk, the podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. I'm Kat Troyer. I'm Liz Bronson. Hey, Liz. Hey, Kat. So we are super excited to welcome Jason Troy to the show tonight. Jason is the author of Social Wealth, and he is an employee engagement and team builder extraordinaire. His TEDx talk is about getting coworkers to like each other and to get engaged with each other. He's also created a team building game called Cards Against Mundanity. Jason is the host of Executive Breakthroughs, a podcast that brings together game-changing CEOs, entrepreneurs, and experts to share their breakthroughs and breakdowns. So today, we are going to talk about building connections and relationships at work and also give tips and tricks to building connections when you're not at the top of the org chart. Welcome, Jason, and please tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Hey, well, thanks for having me on the show and speaking to your fantastic tribe. And it's nice to be with you in the uh, tech world all the way around and everywhere else. So I think like everyone else, I mean, anyone on this entrepreneurial journey or really anyone in a career today, it's a windy road, right? I started off in law school getting my master's in communication at Syracuse. And then I realized I didn't love and want to do it, graduated and decided to go to Silicon Valley in 97. And I was very fortunate to go at the right time. And I got to work in a marketing agency and I got to work with Steve Jobs at Pixar and Apple, Mark Cuban when I got acquired at Yahoo, people at eBay and like on and on and all these Silicon Valley VC Mm -hmm. firms. I mean, pretty much I was fortunate to be an op-ed of almost everything. And when you work in an agency where you're bidding in RFPs for all this stuff, you're pretty much around the center of great leaders, great teams. Um, great leaders who do dumb things and seeing, you know, crazy things like General Magic, which is probably one of the best assembled teams I've ever seen, um, fall flat on their face, right? With a great idea, but unable to execute. And I think like all of those things really resonated in me in my own career. And, you know, I started my own business as a side hustle and it's uh, evolved from there. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about that side business now hustle. Well, my business now is I do executive coaching. I do part of it. I also do leadership training for people and help managers in their role. I also do a lot of teamwork and communications by helping build, you know, great teams and building trust on the teams in order for people to do their greatest work. And that also goes into employee experience, working on the HR side of people. There's mm-hmm. some conflict resolution. So there's a lot of different aspects of it that take itself in every time you have an engagement because there are different things that need to get done. Some of those things are, you know, mergers, acquisitions, some of those just, you know, depending on the individual, um, self-awareness pops up. So there's a lot of, of things that come along with this world and this role. And I love it. And it gets my sleeves up and I get to work with a lot of great people. That's fantastic. I watched a uh, a video that's on your website and I can tell how much you love the work that you do. So it's always it's always fun to see people who love the work that they do because uh, mm-hmm. not everyone does. And sometimes uh, you start as a side gig and then it works and then you can work into your full-time thing. So Liz and I are big believers in um, you know creating work that you love. So it's, mm-hmm. so welcome, welcome, Jason. And I think with a side hustle, the key thing is I started really small. So when people think about that, I had a full-time job working as a vice president in marketing, and I did it in a really minute area. And I was like, all right, if someone will pay me for this. <laughs> and I found someone else in an existing business that I gave my own IP with to try. So there was no cost for me. Yeah, I was giving up the, half the money. But end of the day, I, didn't, I proved out a model at zero cost. Mm-hmm. Right, and the key thing is, if someone's, what is someone willing to pay you for your time? Is the ultimate way to figure is this going to work or not? Right, then scaling, growing the business is a separate thing, but you got to mm-hmm. know that you have some value there, and then you have to do things like writing a book, which took a long time, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of things that you continually have to do um, to build things out. But it's certainly the way my business looks today was nowhere near as I first imagined it from, you know, the first time I did something. Totally. So you mentioned team building and I I think it's always great to ask people who work as leadership coaches and, and things, what do you believe makes a great team? 
Well, four years ago or five years ago, I really started on the journey because all my all my clients have teams, right? Or sure. they have people that they're working with externally, whether they're clients, prospects, partners, I mean, investors, so how, the ecosystem externally. Well, the problem is all those people need to build significantly better relationships and interact. And as I, they were bringing things up, there was always one-off things I was doing. And I realized that I had to develop methodologies and things that I could, I could work with them and also give them to do so I started to study this and I was pitching, you know, a TED talk I thought about doing on it. And one of the things that I was fascinated with is how do you really build high levels of trust? Because end of the day, when I was looking through research and building, you know, culture, I always felt like the problem is, is that people miss step one, right? The foundation and the roots. <laughs> because end of the day, when you look at research and talk to people about when they meet other people, what goes through the back of their head? The first thing that comes up is, do I trust you or not? And mm -hmm. if I do, how much do I trust you? And you can look at it at a scale of one to five. Five would be extreme trust. And that would be someone who is super close to you, that you have their back and they know of you. And one is people that you completely distrust. Mm -hmm. Right? So the problem is, if you're on that spectrum... The reality is today, if you look at the research and if you go to May 2019 issue of Harvard Business Review, a researcher, Marcus Buckingham, did a lot of work on this. And there's a lot of other people that trust really comes down at the team level. And that's where the culture is built. And the problem is in a team to get the highest performance, you have to have everyone at a five. And the problem is he showed through this research, and I've seen this firsthand, it, everyone says they trust each other. You have the same engagement level as people who actively distrust at a one. Hmm. So the problem is the great performances you see from organizations, like you'll see startup companies that'll totally go through the roof. The reason is, is they have fostered a way to build trust mm -hmm. at, at an extreme level. The problem is when you talk to the people who found the company, they have no way to do it the second time. They don't know why they did what they did. And the mm -hmm. problem is, is when I went out and asked people and I'd spent years asking people. And I always ask it because they're like, well, trust is something that we build. And I ask them, oh, how do you do that and replicate mm -hmm. it like it's a supply chain or operations? And I've yet to really get an answer that's cogent that someone actually does across an organization that actually works. And that becomes the huge problem, right? Because out of trust emanates psychological safety, which is Amy Edmondson wrote at Harvard mm -hmm. about creating a place where people can speak their mind, object, you'll have more diversity of thinking, all the things that are required to come up with great ideas and great things, right? And then sprouting off of that is like a huge part of vulnerability and connection. And when you look at that as a foundation, People in organizations spend so little time on any of those areas. They just assume that they're there and that people are going to figure it out. <laughs> that they're working on higher level things like employee experience. Why don't we get feedback from people? Well, it's great to get feedback, but if you're missing the roots, how are you ever going to translate that as something meaningful? Because you have to create that from, from square one. And you have to do it in a way that you can do it really quickly. Because the other thing today is look where we're all located, right? And all of you are working with remote teams, virtual teams. They could be local. I mean, in the United States, it could be international. Well, how do you do that and replicate that across all of that? And how do you do it if you're a team of five, right, in a company or a team of 50,000, right, in like a Fortune 100 company or 10, right? Well, these are all questions that no one has an the answers to. And I had to really start solving because these are the problems that my clients have at different scales. And I wanted to have a way to replicate and also want a way to give people that they could do it at a managerial level be, that they didn't have to rely on a CEO or a vice president or yeah. someone else to institute it. How could you do it on a localized level when you don't have the power to change the culture and the people that are above you or around you? And so a lot of this stuff you can do on your own without having any buy-in and create a significant effect and really change your career trajectory. Hmm. I think that's awesome. So, you know, we're talking about connections here and they're just so important, right? And in today's climate, 
some people are, are afraid to make friends at work and social connections at work. Um, you know, you know, there's, there's a lot of old school kind of theory to keep your business and your personal life separate. Mm-hmm. But like, I think one of the consequences of this digital age is that, that that may not be as easy to do, or maybe even not even well advised at this point. I'd love to get your take on that, Jason. Yeah. I mean, I think if you talk to anyone under 30 or 35, that's not how they see work anymore. And exactly. I think the problem, the problem, the challenge is, is that when you look back at like 1960, 1970, you find people have very close relationships outside of work mm-hmm. and people have these things that they've built and work is just a place they go. And if they find people, great. But now most people get their socialization from work, right? It's They're true. finding their friends and the people because they're much more disconnected. Like I read a stat that in 1980, the average individual had two to three best friends. If you go to 2015, they did the same exact study and it's down to zero to one. Mm. So our disconnection and lack of belonging, we're finding it through the places we spend the most time in. Mm -hmm. So when you go to work, you're looking for that connection and belonging. So an employer, and if you look at the research, right? I saw um, another researcher at Harvard did a research. They they had, I think, 8,000 people do uh, journal daily for a year or two and looked at what they're writing about their job. And end of the day, people go to work and one of the things that they want to do is produce great work and they want to have close connections with people. Mm-hmm. They don't write about perks. That won't tell, get in anything like Silicon Valley perks. That's mm-hmm. not going to keep people a job. That's not going to keep them happy. That's not going to find your purpose. I could do anything else, right? Sure, it's great. Um, but it's not going to do that. But the part of it is, is that the lack of connection and belonging will destroy uh, people because they don't have outlets and their personal stuff comes to work and their baggage comes to work too, right? So like people come in and I deal with people all the time going through divorce or other problems. Yeah. And the problem is they get little support internally. And if you think about this strategically, right, depending on the level of the person, if they're going through a personal crisis and the people around them don't support and help them, the impact on the organization could be millions or tens of millions or hundred million dollars because... Absolutely. Right? Because I'll ask people I'm working with that are going through a divorce and I ask them, like, on a scale of one to 10, what's your engagement? And on, on average, clients or not, they'll tell me uh, maybe a six or seven, or maybe even down to a five. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have that for a prolonged period of time, because most people's divorces don't last like a month, they're like six <laughs> months or more, right? I mean, right. that's real. Imagine what all of that lack is happening. And when I ask them, mm-hmm. and you ask a question, and anyone can ask you, well, uh, how, how much support do you get? Is the organization helping? And really, you'll find almost no one saying that they really get anything at all, right? And I mean, this is just one. Part now, are there companies that do things or read about Cisco helping kids I've heard with cancer and like, you know, parents and stuff? So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but those are rare stories. And the most common things that go on that are every day that are not something like a health scare are the things we all have to grapple with and makes us human that affect us, that cripple us or make us feel like, you know, we have to hole up or we can't talk that no one Mm -hmm. wants to deal with and help us with. And your job as a leader or manager is to help the people around you, right? There's accountability and there's boundaries, right? I get all that, but there also is another side of it. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. No, I think that having, you know, being in a leadership role and when you know that someone on your team is going through a a tough time, whether that be a divorce or any other kind of loss or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to extend to extend a hand of caring and let them know that you know that you're there to support them, even if the company can't throw a lot of dollar resources toward them. I mean, some companies have EA, EAP programs where you can get counseling. Mm-hmm. I've worked with um, you know one of my first clients uh, in the in the HR consulting space. Uh, when I started doing coaching with them ten years ago, they would bring me on board when they had a when they had an employee who was going through an extra challenge and they might need support. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least they would they would offer my services to them. And that was you know ten years ago. That was very unique in the workplace, especially a small company. You see yeah. it maybe with larger, but I think that smart companies are realizing: wait a minute, our our, our people are our most important asset, mm-hmm. and there are there are 
different ways that we can support them. So I think the work that you're doing is really interesting, Jason. Mm-hmm. I will say to you that like the statement that you said is true. People are the greatest asset. But when you really get down to it and talk to people about how they're thinking about the people part of the equation, we're like in the second inning of a nine inning baseball game. And people are mouthing a lot of the words, but doing uh, that are floundering at a level. I talk to CHROs all the time, and you'll almost never get. I've talked to a lot of them, heard them speak at large organizations. So they have money and resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see very few of them doing anything similar across the board. And some of them are doing crazy things because they're grappling at, they have no idea what to do. They're not sure where they have support of people. And I find that. Now, people have to look at it because of the dollars and the money that are at stake, but they don't know where to go and mm-hmm. what to do. And when you look at the training industry, right? So teaching people and all the stuff, they're spending more money than ever before. And it's less effective. If you look last year, perks and benefits went up like 34% and job satisfaction has gone down and people are moving around more. Um, I have friends in Sil- I have two friends in Silicon Valley that are working in late-stage startups that literally they live in a company like their mom and dad takes care of them. They do nothing. Their dry cleaning is paid for. Their groceries are paid for. They have car They have car allowance every month. They pay gym memberships. Like literally they spend no money and mm-hmm. both aren't happy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And I mean, and the company must be spending an insane amount of money to do all of this. They get meals, dinner, lunch, mm-hmm. breakfast. Yeah. Right? They even have stuff on the weekends that people want to come in. And I'm like, if, if we're coming down to the same thing that people don't realize, it's like we want to do, people want to walk away and feel like they've made great progress, made an impact and do great work. And they want to feel like the people around them care about them and they have some sense of belonging. And people work at a lower wage, less benefits and do all this stuff. And they feel like instead of, it's kind of like your mom and dad that or like people's parents you'll hear that are wealthy, that don't spend any time with their kids and buy them things so that they think it makes them happy instead of actually spending time with their kids, right? You've seen movies or store, like whatever. Sure. I feel like in, in corporate America today that that's exactly what's going on. Well, we'll let's just try to buy them instead yeah. of actually doing the things that we need to do. And going back to it now, there, again, there are companies that are doing things, but those are definitely the rarer ones. Mm-hmm. And there are very few of them in total compared to them. And, and I feel like if you're an executive running this company, like you have to put this in front and center of your business plan and the importance of it. And you either are not seeing it or the people there just completely don't get it. And that, to me, is the thing that should frighten people today. And why that they're coming and like shows like this are taking off, right? Because if you look a handful of years ago, there weren't that many HR to culture shows, like, mm-hmm. like podcasts. Like I'm yeah. going to uh, a conference, um, CultureCon, in, uh, uh, was out in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't go there the first year, but I talked to them and I couldn't go. They had 200 people and they were all local. Last year I went and there were 500 people from across the United States and some people from Canada actually flew down. And they're expecting to get significantly larger this year. And they've done some marketing and advertising, but by no means are these some savvy, like, like marketeers or like these guys are smart guys, but they're not crazy. They're not Steve Jobs doing a conference. Is that the, the folks, the human synergistics people? Uh, no, they're basically two guys that are running different startups. I don't think that's the, yeah, they're, and it's, but it's fascinating to see all this stuff. And I just mentioned it because I think there's a significant sea change going on. And I think more conversations need to be had about this because I think that it's, it's really the competitive advantage for organizations Mm -hmm. And, and they're, and they're not doing it in the way that they should. Right. Even Amazon talked about $700 million of training. A lot of that's hard skills. And a lot of that's like distance learning and online stuff, which let's mm-hmm. be honest, how, how much are people really learning and taking? You can't teach a soft skill on a computer screen with yeah. a video. Can you a little bit? Yeah. But you got to coach because a soft skill is what? Right. 
is something that you practice. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to experience it and get feedback Mm -hmm. back. Right. And then when you look at Mm -hmm. LinkedIn's research, right. Anyone Google LinkedIn about what employers are looking like, what do they want in the top skills? Almost all of them are soft skills. Communication. Right. When you look at leadership and the best leaders and what they're talking, they, they classify them and say, okay, what are the skills, you know, great leaders need to have moving forward? Almost all of those are hard, like soft skills. Very few of them are hard. Mm-hmm. But then you look at how much time are these people spending on all that? And there's nowhere near, near where they need to be, right? So I think there's a lot of issues that need to be talked about and people need to be held accountable because you can't talk about building a culture if you have no idea of how to build trust. Mm-hmm. And you can't have a plan because you, a baby can't run a marathon if it can't like walk. Right. Well, I, I sort of think that's like the conversation. Like, well, you want to have a kid run and they're in a crib. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. this makes no sense at all. You're having a conversation that's not it's like, it's not even remotely close to what we should be having and having the honest conversation and putting in the work that's necessary. So Jason, a lot of what you're saying, and I, I, I couldn't agree more that we need to see people as people and connect and all of those things. But I think a lot of this is really at the line manager level and, and from a CHRO standpoint, enabling line managers to care and to do what's right. And so I feel like almost starting at the top isn't the right place to start. It's the top empowering the people who know the people. Definitely, yes. It, but I think it is like, for instance, if we talk about this game cards against one Danny that I created, the reason, like, you know, honestly, I go and I've had more than now 30, at least 30,000 people. That's probably a low estimate of using it. And like, I like to think that I'm some rocket scientist and some brilliant person who come up with this. But the reality is, what is it? It's getting people in a group to have real conversations that all of us actually want and have with the closest mm-hmm. people in our life and share and get to know them. And when you can do that, you create another level of bond and trust with people. And mm-hmm. you, any line manager in any company can use this and create trust and create more teamwork and communication and increase performance. And the question it needs to be is like, why isn't anyone else doing this stuff? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and you're right. The top has to empower the bottom. The problem is the top isn't doing it because they aren't thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. It's not on their radar. They're talking about it. They're not saying to them, I don't think probably anyone is, is teamwork one of our top five initiatives right now? But Mm -hmm. I have four clients of large companies I've been working on sales cycle now for like 18 months. And I came to them and pitched this idea and they're not the top, they're division or VPs or division managers and they are all bought into this. The problem is people above them are not. Right. Well, now all four of them last month just coincidentally all came back because I've been working on trying to pitch this. And they're like, we have permission and budget to do this because we have made zero progress in 18 months. Mm-hmm. And our CEO, and these are very, very large, large companies. And the executive team has no idea what to tell them to do. So finally, they have permission because... They can't stall anymore. They're losing money. They're not having any more productivity because of lack of these things. And I think it just comes down to empowering people to give them the tools to start doing these things and experimenting. Even if it doesn't work, it's better to start trying something than the current rendition of doing nothing, nothing. and not teaching <laughs> managers like what to do. Because I think, like again... You go to manager training and you learn to be a manager. Well, the problem is, is that if the people around you are scared to give you feedback or will not give you truth, right? And talk to you and tell you how you're doing. How do you know? And if you stand, people are too afraid to have uncomfortable conversations. Right, right. I spend most of my time pushing my leaders to have the uncomfortable conversations. Read Brene Brown's books, right? Mm -hmm. I give them to every client, all of them. Why? Like, it, it, it's not only because she's brilliant, but if you have that foundation, then right? you can go further. Then you can you can mm-hmm. weather the storms better. The uh, the upfront yes. work and even around values and mission. Um, you know, I talked to a, a leader recently who I said, "Well, have you done that work?" And he said, "Well, yeah, it's in a Google Doc somewhere." <laughs> and he sent it to me, but you know, it was clear that they hadn't they hadn't really finalized it, nor are they using it as the powerful tool it can be. 
in the business. Like if, if there are values that the business really aligns with, every employee should know what they are because they can yeah. be, they can be North stars. They can be guideposts. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's important upfront work, but how often is it overlooked or just kind of like, okay, we're going to phone this one in and, and check off the box. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I, I'm, I'm on the same page with the, with you there, Jason. I mean, sure. how many times people who have values are in their performance reviews? Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. values that they have actually go in the performance review and the manager are saying, are, do you leave up to these values? Do you embody them? And how do they show up in your work every day? And how is that going to your compensation and tie to them? Right. Mm-hmm. But another company you want to look at is WD 40, which is spray can, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have an incredible culture. They have 400 people that are making more than $2 billion. And if you look at their growth over the last 20 years, they haven't had one year where they've experienced negative growth. And and they do an employee survey and they publish the numbers to their investors on every earnings call. Mm -hmm. Front and center. They're like, these aren't, and and they're incredible, right? Their scores... Or I mean, when they and they publish the numbers too, right? So people can see them. They're all in the nineties or like higher about people loving their work, about telling their friends and family about it, about all these other aspects of the, and, and that keeps them honest because they report them. They have them sign an employee pledge about knowing what to expect working here, right? Like part of it is like if you don't know an answer, your job is to find it. To not know is not acceptable, right? And so. I think when you go and use a lot of other things that they're doing, I mean, you know, and their turnover rate is insanely low. And, and there's, and if you st- tell me you need to find your purpose, well, it's a spray can that people spray, <laughs> right? Huh. This isn't right. some like we're saving the world, right? But people there love the company and love their work and love their pe- people, and they don't lose them. And I think we can That's all great. learn that if we start embedding it, but there's even simple things you can do, like how to work with me manuals, right? Like one of the things I found and I've been interviewing people over the years and managers and leaders, and there have been different pockets of them. I found a few years ago, I was looking through my notes and I found this and they basically had everyone on their team fill out like 10 or 12 questions. Um, like you would uh, to go to Ikea to, to figure out how to put together a complicated thing. There are questions like, what are your pet peeves? <laughs> if someone has to approach you with a hard conversation, how should they do it, right? Yeah. Other things like that. So you have a user manual on every person that's there. And, and you can access anyone in the company. So if you mm-hmm. have to go interact with them. Now, how much easier it is, because one of the problems we have is trying to you know, analyze and predict, and then we're wrong, mm-hmm. and then we never ask behaviors of people and we annoy people that aren't just like us that don't act like this right and then mm-hmm. that goes into diversity diversity of thinking mm-hmm. it's something simple to do right you see that stripe does this and i've seen other like other companies are, are instituting this i mean not necessarily organizational why but pockets but that's another thing you can give a line manager which mm-hmm. is simple to do which would take almost no work to do which they don't need almost any oversight to get done but yet, you, I see no companies doing this of any scale, right? So these are simple things. They can all figure out, Google it. So like, and it's not like the conversations aren't having. So mm-hmm. I think one of the problems is, is that they're not giving the managers the tools to actually help them and teach them how to do it that are the ones that are the most important ones. Mm-hmm. And then they're just saying, well, you go figure it out. Yeah, yeah. One of the challenges that you know, many leaders have been promoted because they were technically good and then they were brought into management. They may yes. be technically good at whatever their trade is, but they haven't been versed in how to be a good manager. And one of the best, I mean, what I hear you saying um, is, you know, be curious, ask questions, mm-hmm. and then share information, right? Get, get to know the people you're working with so that you can work together more effectively. I, I'm really fascinated with the cards, Jason. Can you tell our audience just kind of briefly what they are and where mm-hmm. they can find them? Because they're available for purchase, but you also can download them off of your site, yeah, right? for free. So t- yeah, that's awesome. I mean, what a nice gift that is. T- can you tell our audience a little bit yeah, more about so that? So one of the things where I was working, I try. I mean, I tried it. Whenever I'm doing something, I try to find research based on the things that I'm coming out with and enough of it. So I know that there's some validity to it and it's mm-hmm. not sitting in my head. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a research lab, so I can't prove mm-hmm. everything out myself. Right. So I was coming across uh, an article. I actually went to the New York Times and I randomly mm-hmm. read this article 
And it was about a woman who went to a bar and she met um, or had a, went out on a first date with a guy and asked him 36 questions and she ended up getting married. And I thought, one, that's pretty amazing that you could go out and get any man to ask 36 <laughs> questions on a date. Right. So you either got to be some superwoman, right? Maybe she should have been the super, like, you know, Wonder Woman or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, I got to click on this. And I thought it was clickbait, but it mm-hmm. actually went to a study by Professor Arthur Aaron. And what he did was he had 54 grad students in his first study, and he was looking at interpersonal closeness. How can you build super close relationships? He had them ask 36 questions over 45 minutes. And the questions are different than mine, but they were really vulnerable. Like one of the last sets of questions was, uh, tell your partner three things that you really like about them. Now, these people were complete strangers, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? So that's hard to look someone in the eye when you're doing it and tell them something that quickly when you have no information. Well, what's crazy about this, and they replicated the study and the results are almost always the same, is 30% of the people rated that relationship in 45 minutes as the closest relationship in their life. Wow. Now get that. That means I could take any of you, all three (laughs) of you out to a coffee shop. And I've actually done this before and introduce you to four people and you'll walk away with a best friend. And I've done it and proved it out that it'll work. And the reason is, is that the questions that he asked and more building on the ones I did are extremely vulnerable. And they're all the conversations that we want to have. Now, I looked at that at that time and I thought, well, could I apply to a group? Because I didn't really see any research you see a lot of trust research that's at the individual level, but at the group levels where it breaks down a lot, right? And you'll see Amy Edmondson do something, but it's on psychological safety. And she doesn't even have any tool that anyone can use that's like a block and tackle. She also is like, well, you got to try a lot of stuff to build this. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't have any help really anywhere. So I thought, well, let me experiment this. And so I called up an acquaintance of mine. And thought, well, if I don't know the person that well, that's great. And I said, bring some people together. And I told the person my idea. And I had a feeling they probably want to do it. And I was like, just make sure that none of the people are connected on Facebook or LinkedIn with me. So I went out, like, and it was a Saturday night. And I remember this vividly. We went to a Tex-Mex restaurant. And I was like, my plan was that there was the third... I asked his questions. I didn't use mine because I didn't come up with it. I wanted to see, like, is this really going to work? Or is this mm-hmm. some hokey thing? You were testing it out. I was testing it out because mm-hmm. at some point you can believe it, but you need to see it. And I was like, these, this is like almost too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down with these people and I asked the first, like, you know, first 12 questions. And I could not believe what they were sharing with me, a complete stranger. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought it was like on a reality TV show <laughs> on Bravo. And I've been sitting there, right? As Andy Cohen, the whole <laughs> like, I was, this is insane. I was like, it was just, I was actually having fun just even being a part of it. And I didn't answer anything. I was sitting there and they didn't even know me. They had no idea this person they're talking to, right? And answering in front of each other. And so then I finished the 12 questions. It took like, you know, about an hour, maybe a little bit more. And literally, like I was almost in prison and said, you cannot mm-hmm. leave. We have to know what the other 24 questions are. Mm-hmm. So I sat there for three hours on a Saturday night and I had something else to do. And if I would have had another 12 questions, they would have kept playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and at the end of it, it's not like they ran out of juice. They were still asking questions and talking about other stuff that was in between and going around. And literally all I had them do was answer the same one, this person I went around and everyone answered the same question. And yeah. after it happened two more times, the thing that I realized with people that different than like, if you're talking one-on-one with someone, is that when you're in a group of four, six, or eight people, you're going to find a few people that have common experiences you have. So it's almost impossible for it not to happen. But mm-hmm. the other thing is common emotional connection with people. And you feel the same emotions and you realize that you're not alone anymore when you hear all these people. And when it comes at that level, it creates something really special in the moment that we all want from being in a tribe, you know, and in a gear, in a, all that stuff, and feeling close with a bunch of people in a moment that we rarely have in our lives 
when we cut out the BS, there's no small talk and people are just raw, real, authentic, right? A la Brene Brown. Yeah, people crave that stuff. Yeah, and they can't get it. Yeah. Right. And it's amazing. And now I mean I do it in conferences and other people, and it's one, two, three mic drop every single time with people. And I'll do some organizations as a workshop. Mm-hmm. And it's transformative. And the other part of this, I that's really when you want to talk about applicability, I did this at Google and I did this for an offsite. And what ended up happening is there were 700 people, and there were people from international. And I hadn't done this many times before, and we did them in small groups. And the thing I didn't realize till after that was if I have all these small groups, if everyone knows they're doing it at the same time, they treat everyone as though they're in the same group. Mm -hmm. And I have people in different rooms. And you saw all these people connecting and talking like they had never done before. And they were flying all over the world people in, right? Different, you know, mm-hmm. cultures and everything else. And it was magical to see when you let people actually be themselves, take off their armor and allow mm-hmm. them to be real and raw and have a conversation. And it opens a door because then when you build that level of trust, right? When people know questions like, so what's the most important lesson you've learned this year? If you had one person to thank for helping you become the person you are today, who would it be and why? Tell me about the biggest blessing you've had in disguise. And you could have funny, there's mm-hmm. ones in there like, oh, you know, if you had a superpower, what would it be? Well, when you ask questions like that, you know more information about them or, or than probably anyone in their life, or at least as much as the people in their inner circle. So what happens psychologically then is people put you in their inner circle, even if they don't know you as well, even if they do and they don't know that information, it opens a door. Because then they'll allow you to get close to them if you take other actions and you can build a relationship of people super quickly that it's taken 5, 10, 15, or 20 years of your life to do. And you can do it in weeks or months. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Okay, so where can people go to find the cards, Jason? Well, my website, jasontroy.com, is jasontreu.com. And then there's Cards Against Mundanity too. And there's a physical card set and then there's the download that people and there's instructions jasontroy.com and cards against mundanity yes.com as well okay yeah those those are the two places i'm definitely going to download them it's simple because all you got to do is literally you take a card Mm -hmm. and everyone answers the same question Mm -hmm. and then you go to another one and all you have to you know if you ask you know you can ask six or eight now you can do this one-on-one with people and it can work really well it's just one-on-one your mileage is going to vary because you don't know if the other person will always reciprocate. If they do, the outcome will be really good. Mm-hmm. You don't know. But if you, you can also, I have sales teams use it like because you can do it with prospects, you can do it with other people, and you can just say to someone, look, I'd like to, I'd love to get to know you better. Like I like to really get to know the people I'm working with. Can we play a game and a couple questions? And when you say that to someone, everyone loves to play games. And the fear of missing out and not knowing what this is, people can't resist it. And, all, right. and in that instance, when you don't have much time, if you ask a couple questions, what you do is you stand out with people because if you look at trust, the factor that rises to the stop is caring. You have the, you know, there's sincerity, there's reliability and competency. Well, if you look at any of those alone, right, it's kind of like the person who's reliable, right? Well, if they show up on time, and they don't care about you, are they going to be one of their clothes? No. But if they care about you, right, and they're always late, you're going to make exceptions yeah. for them, right? Well, it's, they mm-hmm. found or enough, right? Yeah. Like, you know, for, there's people we have that are always late that we have right. in our inner Good thing circle. we love them. Good thing we love them. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, that's the key, right? Because if you show you care to people in a deep level, they'll start then psychologically putting you in a framework of saying, well, people who ask me questions and act like this are the people that have my back. So wouldn't I rather buy software or technology or any other product or yep. service from them? Because when the chips are down, that seems like a person I can count on. Yeah, mm-hmm. we work with the people we trust. Exactly, really? right? That's exactly it. And we'll mm-hmm. pick inferior products or services 
when we know people will have our backs because we know that product or service is going to break and we're going to need that person to help us at some point. So Jason, I have a kind of cynical question, but so we build these relationships and trust, right? But then where does ambition play into it? And like, how do we know people have our backs? We've all seen it in the worst where people want to move up and so they'll make way however they can. I mean, at what point does that professional personal line come into play with all of this? Um, and how can you be connected yet kind of stay professional if that's how you feel or also not be trusting of everyone and therefore putting all your cards on the table in terms of maybe you want to go for that promotion or something like that? Yeah, I guess I try to look at things as not a zero-sum game. Sure. Because I think that one of the things that happens in any job, like I'll have a lot of clients where I've helped them invent jobs. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if you look at any company, right? And I'm sure you've all been in companies. If you really want to come up, there's probably positions you all have thought about, maybe not pitched or, you know, maybe some other reason that could have been another position that could have been there. Mm-hmm. So I look at it like that. And I think that if we all work together in a team, we all succeed. And the problem is when you look at it as a zero-sum game, you will fail if that's what happens. You'll get promoted, but then you will not work well because you'll be worried that everyone's mm-hmm. going to take your job, right? Your job sure. as a manager and a leader is for someone to take your job because that way you have somewhere to go, right? right. Whatever that is. And, it, and I think when you live in scarcity, not abundance, there is a load of problems that go on. And that's also education that an organization and companies do to foster all of this stuff and experiences and help you as an individual to not be put in that situation. But right, like playing cards against Mundani, I don't tell anyone that that is like the savior itself. That's a start, right? It's a tool. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tool. tool. And it's a doorway sure. that opens up mm-hmm. that gives you... But, then you have to do stuff like the user manual and employee experiences to do. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of other things that you can do, peer feedback and recognition and a lot of things that can go on sure. to occur sure. simultaneously. And then you can do a lot of this stuff that isn't super expensive, no matter what mm-hmm. scale you are. And you can even do it if you're an individual manager and get creative. Sure. But that's the difference um, is having that and building it into the fabric of the company itself. Or if you're a manager realizing that if you don't do these things, you can't be successful, regardless of what the people around you do or the hierarchy and management do, mm-hmm. you don't, you can institute this. And I have clients who are doing this in a vacuum or in companies that actually are the opposite or more cutthroat. And what happens is they end up winning because they have relationships across the business that no one else has and people treat them differently because they know that they can count on those people and they can't, right? So what's happened, they do exceptionally well while other people founder, mm-hmm. right? So it's, you know, but it, is it harder in an organization like that? Yes. Yeah. Are you going to have a lot more problems? Yes. Is, are mm-hmm. you going to get the same effectiveness you would if it were instituted across a culture? You know. But that doesn't mean you're still not getting a significant lift on something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the introverts? Well, it's funny because over the last year, I talked to introverts about this and showed them the game. Yeah. And they love it more even than the extroverts do because the same, because what the, an introvert says to me is that, look, if I could take these cards and I could get everyone to answer them, I would have a ton more conversation than I'd be a ton more engaged. Mm-hmm. What really annoys me is having to have all that small talk. And by the time I get to the conversation I actually really want, I'm yeah. tired and I'm drained. I'm exhausted. And then yeah. I'm exhausted, right? So mm-hmm. for them, they're even more excited because it's a tool for them to use to get to what they actually want. And mm-hmm. I think people misunderstand introverted individuals, right? It's not that they don't want to talk and have relationship people. It's just that they get drained in the process to have the same conversation extrovert can have because they get energized. Now, they still want to get to the meat and potatoes, but they can get to that point and not feel like they've been hit by a brick wall, right? And that's really the difference. And right, a lot of people, too, are like ambiverts where they're in the middle. They have both things. It's not like a one, it's zero sum. But the people that they self-select themselves as an introvert 
love the opportunity to have the meaty conversations that they ultimately crave and want to have and lack. And so a lot of times they just opt out because they don't know that there's another way that they can actually get around this and get to something that's mm-hmm. there. And that's what's really sad is that they have a lot of value and things to add, right? Just as much as anyone 100%. else is. They just don't know how to do it and they don't have a tool and a process to get there. And they're frustrated because they've tried this essentially thousands of times in different ways. Yeah. And they've essentially been all sabotaged. So then they just settle for the relationships they have and the people because the effort to do the rest seems mm-hmm. so overwhelming that it's not worth it to them to do it in their own mind because of who they are. Well, and people don't know how to get it out of them. Like they don't know how to get that person engaged in the room. And so this also forces the person to talk in the room in an authentic way, which may get them more engaged. Yeah, which helps all sides of it, Mm -hmm. right? And the thing about a question is that if you have someone else can do part of the work for you, right? And that's the most helpful thing. And you don't have to think of the idea. It's on a, it's, it, it also, the problem is for an introvert is what questions do I come up with? How do mm-hmm. I ask these questions? Like, so they're running through their head like this, you know, long computer program we've seen mm-hmm. on like, you know, uh, like a string where it's scrolling down <laughs> and like, you know, the old computer. All those zeros working. and ones. All yeah, those zeros right? and ones. And that's rolling through <laughs> their head. You take out something as simple as saying, hey, answer this. Well, then you take all the stuff out and they can actually then get to the yeah. conversation. Mm-hmm. And then they can do it a lot and not be so worn out. And then once you get deeper and they get more energized and see there's a result, they'll do a lot more of the talking mm-hmm. than you would think that they would normally do based on thinking of an introvert, right? We just don't see that as often because they don't get to that point in front of us, even if we're doing research or a coach or consultant. Mm-hmm. But I have enough times. And I think that that's another process to use with people is just to teach them how to do this. Yeah. So giving them the social wealth as well as yeah. the people who automatically are going to get it. Speaking of which, social wealth is the name of your book, right, Jason? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that before we wrap up today. And so, you know, when I started on this journey, I realized that the relationship was a huge problem. And I wanted to give people essentially a blueprint because one of the books I really liked was, you know, Keith Ferrazzi's book, How Never to Eat Alone. And I met him, but as I was reading this and a lot of other books, one of the things that frustrates me is that I don't have time to read 300 pages. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the books, I mean, they have a lot of stories to try to prove that the author is smart or well-connected or knows a lot rather than getting to, here's the research, here's what to do. Humans like metaphors, Jason. That's I know. love to be told things in stories. I know, but I got frustrated because I was like, I wanted something to give to people that I'm like, okay, if you need me to prove to you that I'm smart and I got all this and can do this, right, then go read someone else's book. But if you actually want to learn how to do it and get <laughs> right. results... Here's mine. Quick, here's quick mine. down or dirty guide, right? Yeah, right. And then I also wanted to have it that it was you know, 90% really content and maybe there's 10% marketing or sales because you can't avoid that. But it was really low where they could do this with never interacting with me and get the results. So I structured it as a how-to book of how do you meet people? How do you engage with them in a professional setting? How do you go to conferences? Like literally block and tackle from front to back and to show people that one of the challenges we have is we have to interact with a lot of people to find our own tribe because our own tribe is not showing up at our doorstep. And one of the things I've asked a lot of people was if if I gave you an option to meet your best friend and there was a room of five people or a room of a hundred and I gave you unfettered access to do whatever you wanted and all those people would agree to it and you could, you only could find one person, what room would you pick? Well, Literally every person said, well, I'd pick with 100 people because I have a lot more people to choose from and I can interview and get all them down. And then I'm like, okay, well, why are you living like there's only five people in the room? Right? Because that's one of the biggest problems is a lot of the relationships we have at our default. And that's the one thing an extrovert has an advantage over if they actually do the work is they can do that where an introvert or ambivert has a much harder time going through that process. Yeah, the hunting is more fun for the extrovert, right? 
Yeah, it is. And they're willing to do it. And the thing about life is like, the, I, I mean, the 10,000 hour rule has been debunked, but what you'll find is, and I'm sure you all see this in all the things that you do, which makes you great, is you have done the things you've done so many times that you can identify the pattern so quickly, it's like snapping your fingers. And someone else who looks at what you do, like, well, I can't even imagine, like, they're still thinking about step one and you've gotten to 100, right? Well, that's, we're all like that. We're all a bunch of patterns. And once we see this unconsciously, we can read through it and get much faster what we need to do. Well, that's like meeting people. The more you do it, the better you get, right? Now, of course, are there people that are great? Yeah, it's the same thing you look with people that go to the gym one day a week and they look like they've gone seven, right? Well, okay, so we're always going to find an exception for 0.1%. But for the 99.9% of other of us, we have to do this in the workplace and we have to know what questions to ask to start digging deeper to build the relationships we really want instead of sending on there. So the point of the book was to get people far enough along that you can help them get the results they want and build the relationships that they need and want in their career and professionally rather than settling or not having a process or even knowing what to do. And giving it to a way that then they can go look at it and saying, oh, I'm going to some event or a conference or something. Like, what do I do? They can flip through a chapter and pretty quickly look at, okay, here's conversation starters that are going to work. Here's a bunch of things. And then they can pick out... I don't say to people, here's exactly what to do. I give them a choice because everyone has a mode that works better. And the point of the book isn't to get them to do my way of doing it. It's to give them a pattern that I know that a process that will work for them to take the information and then do it their way. But Amen. once they have success, you can modify and customize it and become you and your process. Mm -hmm. But if you never get the evidence, you then don't have anything to see on how to create it. And then you don't. Or, or it becomes very haphazard in our life. And without you know, a pattern and, and a process... You, you then get very frustrated because one time you'll go to a conference and add some great, like amazing, you meet 10 people and you're like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the world. And then you'll go to nine other ones and meet almost no one and you'll get super frustrated, right? And that doesn't serve anyone. No. no, it does not. So Jason, where can our audience find you to learn more about building their social wealth and connecting with their coworkers and building a more cohesive team? You can go to my website. It's uh, jasontreu.com and there are Cards Against Mundanity there, mm -hmm. link to the book on Amazon and coaching mm -hmm. services and programs and... All of it. Anything. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, and thank you so like much. Yours are there. <laughs> hey, awesome. yes, that's where they found you first. Um, so thank you so much, Jason, for joining us today. We truly appreciate it. And thank, thank you for you. all the knowledge that you've given all of us today. Thank you for having me on the awesome. show. Thank awesome. you, Jason. Thank you. This is Real Job Talk, a podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. Our website with all Real Job Talk related information is realjobtalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, topics you'd like to talk about, and Real Job Talk stories. And you may find them featured on a future episode. Use the website or email us at realjobtalk at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Real Job Talk. And on Instagram and Facebook at Real Job Talk Show. My name is Kat Troyer. You can find me on Twitter at Daily Cat, And on LinkedIn, you can find me via Kathleen Nelson Troyer. And I'm Liz Bronson. On Twitter, I'm at Liz Beeks and Salt. And on LinkedIn, I'm Liz Bronson. Real Job Talk is a Tech Reckoning production. Our producer is John Mark Troyer. Our graphic artists are Lexi and Zachary Bronson. And we're here by the water cooler waiting to talk with you.